Welcome to Lead Today with me, Kalina. Let's talk leadership. Hello and welcome back. Today is a good day because we get to continue along this thought process of, well, the dark side, I guess. Um, I'd like to venture into the territory of not just the Black Madonna. I think we covered that a little bit in the last episode, although down the line, I'd like to do a bit more of a thorough series on each particular dark goddess and really delve into their tendencies. But I think there's a lot to be said here to continue from last episode because I get a lot of clients coming in wanting to work on goals, wanting to work on what work toward what they want in life. And a lot of times what they want in life is directly linked, tied in, or associated with tragedy or suffering. And what I mean by that is often you do have to suffer or go through tragedy to realize your full potential or become the person that you're meant to be. And it sounds it can sound cliche, right? Like, okay, the beauty is in the struggle or, but that's actually true from a dopamine perspective. You get the most reward from the journey. I have clients again and again coming in, wanting to work toward a goal, thinking when they attain the goal, that will be the day, right? When I hit that certain amount of revenue position, you know, a promotion, when I get the job or house or car, there's a certain idea that once they get there, that will be the moment of glory. Oddly enough, though, client after client, they recognize that the true, not only transformation of themselves, but reward is in the journey, the progression and the little wins throughout the journey. Because once they get there and they achieve it, they're happy for all of one day or a couple of days, and then it's just on to the next, right? Because our human tendency is to want more. And sure, you could say, okay, part of that is be grateful for what you have. So yes, want more. But as you attain things, as you achieve different things in your life, count your blessings. So that could be one thing to say is, all right, well, maybe you don't have to strive so hard. And okay, fine. Maybe you don't. Simultaneously, that's your nature to want more. Because stagnation is not good. Stagnated water, stagnated progress it's unhealthy and seen as suboptimal and it's suboptimal because we are meant to continue to grow and evolve change change is the only constant as they say so why explore the darkness well i find okay i had one client um a really lovely guy who i enjoy working with very much he you know started to contemplate death after um someone in his family passed away or extended family had passed away and started to contemplate death. And I decided that that would be worthwhile to see, okay, what's the utility of focusing on the fact that, you know, my time is limited and I should utilize it effectively. That, that premise of urgency and well, gratitude comes up from that too. And so he started contemplating death, his own mortality every day. And he came back after a little while after that session where he decided to go about trying that out. And he came back a week or two later and said, you know what? I don't think I'm doing this right. And I've, I really felt out of sorts. 
didn't feel comfortable. I'm, I've gone back to really being focused on the present moment and focused on, you know, my to-do list and my tasks. I'm really comfortable with, you know, getting things done, writing my list of stuff that I need to do and going and doing it and the productivity component or the creation component. And of course, right. Of course, when it's like using your right versus your left hand, when you're used to doing something a certain way, of course, trying the opposite way is going to feel odd. It's going to be uncomfortable because it's new. This is, I can't repeat this enough. (laughs) You know, clients come in all the time. Oh, I'm really nervous about this new job or this new thing, this next step, this next new thing. Okay. Well, next and new, when something's new, of course you're uncomfortable. The definition, I mean, comfortable comfort comes from the known. So how could you possibly be comfortable with the unknown? It's just kind of impossible by definition. The point is not to be comfortable in the unknown, just like it's not, (laughs) you can't be comfortable in the known. You can be willing. That's the word I've come up with, willing. And then it takes a certain level of bravery or courage to walk toward the unknown. And I think that that's exactly what the Black Madonna represents is the willingness to embody confront, go toward, look at the unknown. So that's a major piece. And it's the, so some people might say, okay, well, why, you know, why the black Madonna, that's a Christian figure, you know, there, there are African practices, certainly in Hinduism and Egyptian history, there are different goddesses that that embody a similar notion. Well, fair. (laughs) I mean, all I can say is fair. Yes, that's true. You've got Kali, you've got Isis. And I mentioned those a little bit in the last time. I'd like to give you a few tidbits about the two of those lovely ladies as well. Um, But it's all the same in effect. And I say that hoping, you know, not to offend anyone, but to say the, the deeper meaning why we have these figures across the world in different cultures, different religions is because this need for that energy of all the things that the collective order cannot accept, the collective order being the known, being order, logic, reason, everything that's outside of that, right? So when you get a diagnosis that seems out of left field that you can't rationalize, when um, you know something miraculous happens in your life, what do you do? You can't order your way or rationalize your way to that solution. So who's supposed to account for that? How do you account for that? Well, exactly. The black Madonna or those dark figures, the dark goddesses can reconcile with that. And not only that, but they can use them in noble and valuable ways. So those sacrifices, those tragedies, the dramas of life, the miracles, the miraculous, the unknown, the chaotic, All of that is that dark, maternal, earthy spirit that can be harnessed in order to transform you. And that's exactly why we are interested in adventure, action movies, the unknown, because it's what transforms us. And so... Well, why do we want transformation? Well, exactly from the beginning, we, if we're stagnant, that is worse. We are worse off in stagnation than we are walking toward the unknown. 
And so if we go into Kali and Kali's story and her image, you know, um, Kali's creation involves Durga or Devi who created Parvati. Um, this is just straight out of the Brooklyn Museum's reference. Um, Parvati confidently marched into combat. She was a beautiful and composed goddess to help battle and subdue evil spirits, right? So we get this. We're supposed to subdue and battle, put down, put in the put the monster in the closet or under the rug, under the bed, hide it. So we need to battle and subdue evil spirits, march into combat. But when she was confronted by the demons, she furrowed her brow and her wrathful form, Kali, emerged. And so Kali, if you've seen her representation, she holds a human head as her as her victory. She usually has a, a necklace of of skulls or heads on her um, as well, or, or on a belt as well. She can have um, human teeth. She's she's really, well, she's seen as out of control. And she's also seen as wrathful, angry, and um, this dark side. And so, well, <laughs> are we okay with that? Not really. Um, not at least in Western society, I think in Hinduism and in India and in the in other parts of the world, there's a reverence for that type of power that here we just try to, we try to do the kind of, I think, you know, Parvati thing where we just subdue it. We want to fight it, battle it and wrestle it into submission, but that's not really what you can do with that energy. And so the idea that the black Madonna pops up in Europe and ISIS is in Egypt and Kali comes out of India, the idea that, it, that this, these figures come out of the collective unconscious is the idea that you can't, you could get rid of the black Madonna or Kali or ISIS or any of these other dark feminine energy figures, but that energy would remain. You can't remove the energy because you need that mass that feminine to the masculine you need the counterbalance to the pure virgin and so this this unconscious right we talked last time so the unconscious is that darkness it's deep mysterious the processes of the soul right it's things we don't understand we can't accept consciously and the reason catholicism sort of has its own i guess one unique thing about catholicism is that it does incorporate the virgin mary as a feminine force of around or surrounding the Trinity because you have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, very masculine presences. And the Virgin Mary really represents that feminine. But then not only that, she's seen as the Virgin is seen as a mediator for the sinner, just like a mother is seen as a mediator toward the children and the father. Like if you can think about it, right, as a kid, I mean, it depends on your parents. But Generally speaking, the mom is more gentle, softer than the father, right? You know that mom's going to hug you and make it better. Dad is a bit more gruff and rough and maybe less likely to be nurturing. And that is, I mean, that's the role that, that the father embodies. You can have the, the caring, devoted father figure. No doubt about that. That's why you have God. God is the head loving fatherly figure, right? Father, son, Holy Spirit. I mean, that's exactly what it's supposed to be. But when you get the Virgin Mary in there who mediates for the sinner, that's why when you pray the rosary, 
it's an intercession to for it's for Mary to intercede to give sort of your message to God. It's sort of like pray to Mary to pray to God. It's not that you pray to Mary to pray to Mary that you are circumventing God in any way. It's sort of like Mary, hear me, intercede for me with God. It's this mediation or connection through the mother that gives you a different connection or relationship to the father, right? And, and again, we see that where people will go through their mother to go to the father. I, I can think of um, a childhood friend who whenever she wanted to do something, she would go and ask her mom and then her mom would say, yeah, yeah, I'll talk it over with your father and we'll sort it out. And it was, it was that, it was go to the mother that she will bring it to the father so that his disciplinary hand will be softer upon you or kinder to you or that she can intercede for you. And it's that principle that you see with your parents, right? The mom always says, you know, take it easy on him or her, you know, take it easy. Don't, don't bring down the full force of your disciplinary action. The mom is that sort of figure. And that's why they say, you know, like in the nativity scene, you have Jesus and Mary and Joseph, you have the Joseph, Mary and Jesus, father, mother, and son. That's why that's such a revered visual. I think that's why in the rosary, we contemplate the nativity scene, the birth of Jesus. Yes. It's for the actual story of Jesus and, and the miracle of the immaculate conception and, and all of that. But it's, it's also, I think a representation of and reverence for that nuclear family, that need, like we talked about in the last episode for father, mother, and child. That's why today there's a lot of research looking at, you know, single mothers and not to knock anyone that's in a single mother or single parent role, not an easy place to be at all. The idea is that it's not the ideal and it's not the ideal because you need both types of energy and both the embodiment of that for the child to be I guess, whole in some sense, because you need the father and the mother's genetic material. You need the father and the mother to create the child that need, you need the conscious and unconscious to be whole psychically, spiritually. It's that wholeness you need. You need both sides for creation. So we can look at it biologically, right? And say, okay, we need a mother father for a child. We can look at it psychologically and say, we need unconscious and conscious for the wholeness of the psyche. It's that it's, it, it's, and I think, I know I got into this a little bit, but it's this duality that's so, so important that we somehow, again, get comfortable and avoid the side of it that is uncomfortable, unconscious, mysterious, tragic. Um, in the book, The Black Madonna Vine Sea Dome that I was referencing last time by Fred Gustafson, there's a line and it talks about tragedy is the dark side of purpose. And that's exactly it. I think that a lot of people will pick up something. And I referenced this in Memorable in my book. I think a lot of people find purpose from, you know, someone passing away or a tragic event. They pick up, they pick up that cause and walk with that as their purpose going forward when they go through something absolutely traumatic. I can think of a, a friend of mine who just that she had, um, you know, experienced pregnancy loss and then started a company to build grief boxes. I did an interview with her earlier, Caitlin. Um, there's a few interviews ago 
you could find it if you wanted to have a listen about her and her story. Inspiring, right? You go through tragedy and you find a sense of purpose in that tragedy. And that's exactly the idea of creation. Things come from your unconscious. They bubble up. I don't want to repeat myself from last episode, so I've got to be careful. <laughs> um, but I'm really hoping to add on to this. So so let's continue I, with, with Kali, right? So Kali emerges from the confrontation with the demons. You know, Parvati goes and is walking into combat and then she's confronted by the demons and that's where her wrathful form emerges when she's confronted by the demons when she's confronted by the tragedy of this battle and so the beautiful and composed goddess turns into really a well angry ready for blood you know she's ready to draw blood and pick up heads as um well, I guess the symbols of her conquests in some sense, right? And so she collects heads for her necklace and she wants heads, that is, sacrifices. She craves blood offerings. Indeed, before her, the seat of judgment, the head is cut off and proven impotent. What she offers is beyond the human intellect. As already suggested, the Madonna expresses this same theme. The head of St. Meinrad is held in high reverence, not just as a sign of martyrdom, but as a symbol of the direction psychic transformation must take. The head must be sacrificed. That is, the intellect must be cut off. Whether one stands before Kali or the Madonna Vine Sidon, the effect is the same, namely that the rational mind loses its ability to explain the dark, uncanny forces of life as they are experienced within and without the psyche. These are, practically speaking, those unexplainable black experiences of life which most individuals would just as well do without and in which there seems to be little or no value. This is page 102 of that same book by Gustafsson, The Black Madonna by Seedlin. Yet Kali has a scepter of her own. <laughs> a sword. She's much more direct and crude. With her, nothing is hidden. She's very clear about her victim. It is the head she holds in her left hand. The Madonna, too, holds a victim of sorts in her left arm, the infant Jesus. The parallel is subtle, but no less real. There's a dual aspect to both Kali and the Madonna. Kali is certainly the terrible, destroying mother, first and foremost, while the Madonna is primarily loving, caring, and gentle mother. Yet Kali, too, can be a loving mother. So... Here we are, right? It's like she's chopping off heads and taking names, this Kali, and seems a bit rough, but I think we can focus on that one line um, a little bit, which is what I've sort of been trying to say, but maybe not as not as um, nicely as that one little piece. But this idea that we we do well or think we do well to avoid that, right? We think we do well to stay rational and not cut off the head, but that's exactly where we need to go to find understanding. So if you're struggling with something in life and you're looking for an explanation and certainly again, with a medical diagnosis or being fired from something or anything that feels tragic to you in your life, when that's the feeling that you get, it's very easy and makes complete sense for you to want to, well, explain it, <laughs> right? I mean, something bad happens. Of course, you want an explanation. Why did this happen? You want, and then you want to do something to fix it. So 
a very masculine trait, right? Men want to fix problems and nothing wrong with that. It's really a great tendency. Sometimes though, that's not the answer. Sometimes, and that's where I hear this all the time in sessions as well, where if it's, um, doesn't matter husband or wife, but it, the, the wife, the feminine energy wants someone to listen. Don't fix the problem. Listen to me, connect with me. And the man thinks, well, I could just solve this. And why does she continue to go on and on about this problem when I can just fix it? And a good book in that, in that lane is, um, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Definitely a classic. If you're looking for one to understand the, the male and female nature, but, um, it's this idea that we will avoid cutting off our own heads at all costs because we're so used to being in our minds, rationalizing and figuring things out. And Kali says, Hey, I'll cut off your head and put it as a prize on my necklace and we'll see what you'll do about yourself then. And you'll kind of be walking around with it like a chicken with its head cut off. Won't you, you won't have that direction and that rational order to rely and fall back upon. And that's just what happened with my client. When he was contemplating death, he didn't have the rational, the order to fall back upon. And that was terrifying. He used the word terrifying and it is terrifying. (laughs) It is. I mean, I kind of laugh, but it, it genuinely is terrifying when you contemplate your own death and you contemplate the fact that, Hey, I, I really do have limited time. And so how do you utilize that for your own good? Well, in his case, we talked it through and how do you utilize it for your own good is you make sure that the things that you're working on in the present day are worthwhile, given that, you know, this quote unquote, terrible thing is going to ensue. And now you'd even want to question that. Is it terrible? Are endings terrible? How do you feel about endings? I've definitely struggled with endings. The timing of this episode is sort of interesting, depending on if you follow the cycles of the moon, but the moon is generally uh, considered feminine and the sun is masculine. That does also trace back to um, Egyptian religion, ancient Egyptian religion. And um, Ra was god of the sun. And maybe this is a segue into Isis goddess um but the way that you maximize this when you have an ending when so the full moon just happened or well when this episode comes out it'll be about to happen again or just have happened again um but when there's a full moon right all of these rituals and anyone that's kind of in the, the new age spiritual thing it's like release and let go and then you know, be willing to release and let go of old things and let the new things that are meant for you come find you, but it's release and let go at the, at the full moon, allow things to come to their fullness of completion. And, and then don't, don't hold on to them. And that's a challenge of endings, isn't it? And that's the challenge with death is we're if we're so terrified and deathly afraid, Deathly afraid of of death. Uh, If we're afraid of death so strongly that we're trying to avoid it at all costs, well, the good news is with that is that when you're afraid of something, you can transmute that fear. Sometimes people go from fear to anger. But then you have to go from anger or fear into some... So fear you can take into bravery, anger, anger you can take into determination. So you want to transmute because there's power, there's power in Kali, there's power in the destruction and death, the chopping off of the head. There's power in that, even though it sounds gruesome and vile, it sounds hostile, violent, or mean. 
there's a power to that. And that's why we have to learn how to wield the sword. We have to learn how to wield Kali's sword, right? Of that death and destruction of that ability to chop someone's head off, chop off thought. We have to wield that with a sense of reverence, just because you know how to use a gun or just because you know how to use a sword doesn't mean you pull it out at every instant, right? Or every um, slight aggravation or, or circumstance that bothers you. Like that's not what you do. If you're wise, you wield your sword carefully and with the appropriate amount of consideration for when it's meant to be utilized. And that's the thing with Kali is it's the depths of the darkness are scary and terrifying because there's so much that we cannot see and aren't uncomfortable with and is unknown. So you can either you know, say that you're too scared and not pick up the sword at all. That's not a good solution. You can pick up the sword and try to chop everyone's head off that comes through the gate. And that's an overreaction. And so the idea is probably to find a middle ground for yourself of, okay, when do I need to wield the sword? When do I need to release and surrender to what's happening versus trying to impose my will? And that's exactly the Right? If you were to cut off your head, cut off your thought, it's you allowing yourself to surrender to things unseen, to forces of the universe and nature, to the will of God. That's exactly, you know, in, in the Lord's prayer, like, it's that's exactly it. Let thy will be done. It's exactly what you're doing. You are surrendering thought for the unknown forces for the unconscious, for the mystery, for the things that are yet to be revealed to you. And that's the thing is if you're humble and uh, let me tell you, I've been humbled and I continue to be, it's not a one-stop shop. When I was kind of brought to my knees and I, I think I have been on multiple occasions, it's a reminder. It was a very loud reminder. It was literally a blow to the head reminder that my will has its place, but it's not the end all be all. And every time I think that I can control everything, I get a little reminder and a little whisper of that. And if you can, the more you can tap into that dark energy of, okay, let thy will be done. Let the forces of nature, I will allow the ending and walk out with my sword in hand. Or maybe in its, you know, proper, appropriate place, storage place on your belt, ready to wield it if I need to. But I will walk out into the unknown willingly with the resources I have at hand with the best intentions, but at the end of the day, it's that it's thy will, not mine. And well, so, okay. So what are these other deities? There's Isis in the most famous story of Isis. And this is from an Egyptian museum. They explain this a bit. Um, Rosicrucian Egyptian museum. Never heard of that before, but anyhow, it says Seth, the jealous brother of Osiris, dismembered him and scattered the parts of his body throughout Egypt. 
The ancient sacred stories say that the other deities were so impressed with Isis' dedication to finding her beloved husband that they helped her revive him. And so Isis, again, another one of these dark goddesses, is able to bring her husband back to life with the help of her other deities. And, well, why do we care about some... Why do we care about an Egyptian goddess? Well, first of all, Isis actually has a similar story um, with her son, Horus. There are similarities between Isis, Osiris, and Horus, as with um, the Virgin Mary, Jesus, and Joseph. So there's that. There's also in here, back to the book, same book by Gustafsson, um, He's quoting R.E. Witt, a very important bridge between paganism and paganism is said to come down from, you know, Pharaoh, the Egyptians and, and ancient Egyptian religion. Well, let's start here. The Pharaoh at death is no longer Horus, but Osiris, only to have the process repeated again and again. Consciousness is continually renewed through the process of death and rebirth. The wisdom of Isis is not that, that of the sun principle or of logos, but rather a wisdom of things as they are. Her name means ancient, and as Moat, she is knowledge or wisdom, thus she is ancient wisdom. So she's wise and philosophic. And here it says a very important bridge between paganism and Christianity was a speculative system of the Hellenizing Jew Philo of Alexandria. And in, the, in, it, in it, the cornerstone was holy wisdom, Hagia Sophia, mother of the divine Logos, right, rightly identified with Isis. Isis Sophia could be thought to produce Harpocrates as the Logos. Harpocrates is the Greek name for Horus the child. This is just another way of saying that all consciousness comes from the unconscious side of the psyche, which operates from a perspective of wisdom peculiar to itself alone. The wisdom of Isis is of another order than that of Logos. Isis embodies a generative power that is able to reincarnate Osiris in the form of Horus, so the sun. You see, and if you if you think, okay, so God brings his only son, Jesus, down to earth. Jesus goes on the cross, crucified, died, and buried to reincarnate and be seated at the right hand of the Father. So... <laughs> The similarity there, right? Isis is the regenerative power that's able to reincarnate Osiris. Osiris dies, right? His brother kills him and then scatters his body parts around the world. Osiris is dead, gets reincarnated in the form of Horus. So God or Osiris, the, those are, right? The father figure. Reincarnated through... And so it's not particularly stated like that in the Bible with Jesus being reincarnated. It's not necessarily through Mary, but Mary is there. She sees the suffering of her son, endures the suffering of her son, his persecution, put on the cross, death, right? She sees that she's there. She witnesses it. And then she sees that he's resurrected as well. And it's, you know, was it her that did that? I mean, it's maybe not as blunt or clear as with, this Isis question, but it's through her love that she gives him back his life. In the mystery of mysteries of Isis, the initiate sought to become Osiris and thus be raised from the dead. With such power, Isis is associated with healing. 
much as is the Black Madonna. So it's sort of interesting that ancient Egypt has these stories and these are old stories, like very, very old. I would love to give you a specific number. Uh, I don't have a specific number at the top of my head. But I mean, ancient Egypt, we're talking old. And certainly it comes, um, I want to be sure of that. But it's definitely, I'm scared to say it's definitely. I'm pretty certain it's before the Bible. Yeah, 2,000 years. So 2686 to 2181 BCE, so before Christ or before Common Era, however you want to say it, but, you know, old. So before the Bible. So it makes sense, right, that these these stories just are so old. It's like I can't even hold that notion in my head of how old. Like we're in 2023. So it's like four, like 4,000 years, you know, <laughs> of this, this type of story that incorporates the father, the son, and the, and the mother and these dynamics and how important, not just the nurturing mother that loves and cares and this kind of virginal spirit, but that when everything goes down, you know, when in the depths of despair and death and darkness, when the father dies, the only thing that brings him back to life, into creation, into the son is the love of the mother in this particular story. So when you're in, or if you're in the depths of despair in your life, or if your life's going pretty well, I mean, in both times, if you're in the depths of despair, it's easy to get angry and then just be bitter. If your life's going pretty well, then, well, why would you want to ruin it by contemplating death, contemplating the dark side? Why would you, you know, it's kind of like things are good. Why am I going to mess with them? Well, I don't think you want to mess with them, but what I do think is now when things are good for me and I can walk around, and I'm not in absolutely excruciating pain. I remember what it's like to be in excruciating physical pain, emotional pain, mental pain. I remember what it's like to not be able to leave my bed. And so the highs of life, the goodness, the light is that much lighter because I can put it up against the dark, the low, the darks of the dark. So not that I'm trying to convince you of anything here, but I just, there's this, it's just such a, it feels so satisfying to know that the fact that you go through valleys and life is not all peaks. I mean, we know that, right? We know that, okay, we're trying to climb up the mountain to get to the top and hopefully we can get to the top and it'd be really good if we could just stay at the top. That's not how it works. And hey, actually the death is required for the rebirth. You have to be in the valley in order to go back to the top. You've got to, once you get to the top of the mountain, you've got to walk back down, right? It's like, it's it almost feels like physics. <laughs> what comes up must go down sort of idea. It's just this kind of order of the universe. And so it's not to say, okay, be fearful of just waiting for the other shoe to drop. I had a client like that who could just, never be where he was in his journey like if it was good he was waiting for it to be bad when it was bad he was just waiting for it to be good I think it's more like be where you are 
whether you're in the depths of despair or at the top of the mountain, be there knowing that the other side exists. And so just like sink into the depths or sink into the peak, be so grateful for where you are or, or mine the challenge for the wisdom and the growth that's there. Like in the depths of despair of these situations where I was just so out of control because of my physical health or the, the circumstances, there were times where I just wanted to be out of it, you know? But it's this key of surrender to it that just transformed my experience of healing from my accident. Rather than wanting to get better faster or have symptoms go away or not have, you know, really bad headaches or vision challenges. I had my vision, my peripheral vision was impacted. I had really bad headaches. I couldn't stay up long. It was really challenging. You know, I couldn't assert my will. I couldn't force myself to work harder or more or walk faster or do things. I I did not have the capability physically to do that. And so in those moments, I could either keep struggling and keep pushing and forcing, or I could just let go. And of course, in that moment, you could say, well, if you just let go and don't hold the wheel, your car is going to crash into a, you know, you're going to go into a ditch. Metaphorically speaking, if you don't hold onto the wheel, you'll just, where are you going to drive into? You're going to drive off the road. And I guess the, the point is, well, yeah, maybe sometimes you do have to drive off the road. Not intentionally to put yourself in a ditch, but because I think that's kind of a mystery of life. Why can't we always just stay on the road? Why can't it always be perfect? Why can't we just keep things in order? I think we try as we might, you know, we really do. But the more we're willing to accept that sometimes we're going to veer off the beaten path or off of the conscious, controlled, comfortable, orderly. And the more we seek to understand the unconscious, I think there's a piece there's, um, I cited this in the last episode, but I need to say it again, because it's just too good. Page 107 here. And it says, is Kali, my divine mother of a black complexion. She appears black because she is viewed from a distance, but when intimately known, she's no longer. So the sky appears blue at a distance, but when you go near and take it in your hand, you find that it is colorless. And that's exactly it. There's so much debate. I've read so many articles about the black Madonna. It's like, oh no, she's black because of the candles and the soot in the chapel. And so she turns black because of that. And oh no, it's, you know, she was deliberately painted black to represent that darkness or that, you know, terrible, fierce, dark energy, or no, it's actually a, a nod to, you know, African religions and the, the divinity that comes from their goddesses. And there's this whole kind of cultural overlay to why the Black Madonna is Black. Why Black? Um, and I think rather than debate the color of the Black Madonna's skin, I think it's to understand that she appears black because black is typically dark, which is night, which is potentially dangerous, which is potentially, right? I mean, if we look culturally, black could signify or used to signify, right? Inferiority in a societal way, which obviously we've come to a point now where we don't agree with that anymore. And 
I think deep down at all times, we knew that it wasn't right. I think in our bones, people knew that exploiting other humans is not right. And I, even though slavery has been abolished for some time, I mean, (laughs) we could argue that people still take advantage of other humans and you have really terrible things happening every single day. So, um, evil has not been eradicated in this world. That's, that's for sure. And I don't think you ever will eradicate evil the same way that you won't eradicate darkness. But I think the point is to say your tragedies in life appear like they're darkness and, and bad, but when you get close to them and know them intimately, you'll realize that it's not bad. It's not dark. It's colorless. It is. And if you look into Buddhism, right, it's this idea of, okay, life is suffering and non-attachment and the idea that things are only the way that things are just things, you know, experiences are just experiences. You label them as good or bad. You make them so you make them good or bad based on your perception. And so sure, you could say the death of a loved one. Yeah, well, how are you supposed to see that as anything but bad? Well, okay, of course, there's pain associated. There's suffering associated. My grandmother passed away. And obviously, I don't sit there and think, oh, yeah, this this feels good. This is a good thing. But that's my mind that makes it so. People are dying every single day. I don't feel that same association to the people that I don't know. I mean, it's sad when people die. It's sad in some sense. But is it? We make it sad. And that's where we have these different cultural ways of dealing with death, of hopefully, again, bringing ourselves toward it instead of trying to just distance ourselves. I think that's the biggest thing. If I could, if I have a point, like, why am I even going on and on about this Black Madonna? Why do I care? Why do I care about the unconscious? Why do I care about what the Black Madonna represents or ISIS or Kali, why, who cares? I, I care because I have session after session with clients over the years where people are so terrified to approach because Kali has, is holding this butchered head, dripping with blood, tongue out, looks vicious. And that seems scary. seems terrifying. We all furrow our brows and have that wrathful form when we're confronted by demons, external demons, demons of our own. We turn into that Kali, right? Ready to draw blood when we feel confronted by demons. And all I'm trying to say is I think the more we're willing to confront them, one, the less... I mean, I think we get less terrified, but two, we get more brave. And I used to think that positive, you know, being positive and positive affirmations and people come to me and they want to change their mindset. And I want to be more positive. I want to have a more positive outlook on my life. I want to feel more capable or I have this imposter syndrome or I'm not confident in these ways, or how can I get what I want? How can I achieve what I want in my career? How do I get here, get there? again, how do you get there? Well, you're going to have to transform. Part of you is going to have to die. Um, the, part of your ego, right? They call it ego death. But So part of you, the way you think, the way you 
approach the world is going to have to die. That's number one. If you're going to get somewhere different, you're going to have to be someone different. That's something to, you know, you have to confidently march toward your demons in order to overcome them and then be different as a result of overcoming them. I mean, it's Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, which talk about in memorable, my book as well. And, you know, I certainly am not the one to discover Joseph Campbell. I mean, these, this tale is old, uh, tale is old as time. You have to go and slay the dragon in order to get the princess. Right. So I have noticed in my life that Yes, okay, you have the, the prince stories, right? Those dragon and prince stories, and that's great. But somehow the Black Madonna resonates with me because it's not just this conscious pursuit. I think that's the distinction I want to leave you with. It's not just the conscious pursuit of being brave and seeking the the drag to slay the dragon in your life. That's part of it and noble, and you should do that. And that's where Joseph Campbell's work comes in, and I admire it and respect it. And absolutely, in your day-to-day -day life, go and figure out your challenges and go and slay those dragons and overcome your conscious roadblocks. That's something you can do in coaching. It's something you can do on your own. So yes, overcome your conscious roadblocks, the things that you see that you know could be better. That's a good place to start. I'm kind of getting at, there's this whole other, <laughs> there's this whole other world, that underworld, right? The dark, the, the, in the ocean, the depths of the ocean, in the darkness, there's this whole thing in your unconscious that goes well beyond the things seen, goes well beyond that list of things that if I said, I had a client do this the other day too, they decided, okay, she decided that she would um, make a list. <laughs> she actually told me, which fair, she said, she goes, you know what? I really love our sessions, but sometimes when you point things out, I just feel, I'm just annoyed. I feel like, you know, you're just annoying. And I thought, yeah, okay, I guess I can be annoying. Um, and she goes, but you know what? Then I, I think about it afterwards and then I realize you're right. And I realize that I should, you know, deal with these things and not just should like I, I have to, but should like I want to. And I mean, everyone has I have the ability to be annoying. I certainly know I do, but just to say, right, you could go and you can make that conscious list and that's what she did. She decided, okay, I'm going to look at all the ways that I'm missing the mark on being the person I want to be on being in integrity with, with how I show up with my relationships at work, with my parents, you know, with myself, how, how am I missing the mark? And so she's, you know, making that list and making amends or changes apologies, whatever she needs to make to make the appropriate sacrifice and or redeem the situation in order to make things right. That's what we say, right? I'm going to make things right. Well, what does it mean? Make things right. It means owning where you went wrong first and then doing what's necessary to correct course. And so she's doing that on a conscious level. I think what the black Madonna is signaling at is yes, do it on the, on a conscious level. Yes. You know, Kali is saying there's more, there's more that needs to die. Not just if you cut off your head and you have to look at the things that you can't think through or explain because with your list of things where you realize, I mean, most of us aren't even willing to do that. Most of us aren't even willing to go and say, okay, I'm going to make a list of things that I've done wrong and write them. That's already asking a lot of somebody, right? There are things I've done wrong in my life. I could I probably have a notebook full of things that I 
have done wrong and maybe a few notebooks and to write them all. I mean, I don't even know, you know, sometimes it feels like, where do I even start with that? And you could probably, well, if you wanted to do that, you could probably start with the top five things that really feel the most weighty, you know, the most meaningful, the ones that you feel really hurt you or people around you or the, you know, the top five that you really went off course with. So that's probably where you could start if you wanted to do that. But how do you do that for the things that you can't even consciously see? Well, I think that's where Jungian analysis and looking at your dreams is one way that people endeavor to do that is they work with somebody that's an expert, which I am not a Jungian analyst. I'm not a therapist, nor am I trying to be one. So please don't take any of this as therapy because it's certainly not, or even uh, therapeutic advice or any of that. I mean, disclaimer, disclaimer, that's certainly not what I'm doing here. I'm just exploring as a person to another person talking it out with you as I explore this on my own too. Um, but that's what I'm, I'm, I guess, offering up to you is I think there's some really good voices in the public discourse right now talking about that first side. I said that be the prince that slays the dragon and gets the princess in the castle. And the, so the, the part that my client is doing, which is make the list of things you've done wrong, write them, make the list of things you want, walk toward them, be brave, walk toward them. I am aiming to reveal or uncover, explore, look at the dark side, the stuff that hits you out of left field, the transforming tragedy into op- not just opportunity, into purpose. That's what I'm looking at. And that's what I'm hoping to to bring to light for you is what are the most tragic events in your life? Probably really hard to think of them to bring them to your mind that's painful but if you do bring them to your mind how do you find the purpose out of them what is the meaning of them and then in your present life so that's how you look at the past right so like on the prince side of writing your wrongs the masculine side of writing your wrongs through action this is finding purpose in the tragedy so it's a little bit different you're not writing wrongs you're finding purpose out of pain So that's number one of this process, purpose out of pain or pain into purpose. Another is offerings or sacrifices, as we see with Kali and her head or human teeth, her collection of offerings or sacrifices. They used to have blood sacrifices as well. That's mentioned a lot in the Bible too. Why sacrifices of blood? Well, blood is considered a life force. You know, a creature's life is, is in its blood. And so to make an atonement for those bad things you've done, you have to sacrifice blood. Blood is life force. And okay, well, (laughs) the idea is without blood, without shedding blood, without that sacrifice, there is no forgiveness. It's like a substitution for the bad. That's the writing of the wrong for a sinner is this atonement in the place of life. It's, I guess, Jesus giving his life through the shedding of blood for humanity. And so, well, what's your offering? So pain into purpose, one. What's your offering? So, you know, for example, when people are going through something difficult and they'll kind of 
bargain with God, right? You never pray, but then when something really bad is going on in your life and you just say, please, if you, you know, if you save my mother, or if you fix this issue, or if you make this go well, I promise I'll just, I'll never do this again. I'll never, or I'll never lie or I'll, you know, you make some kind of promise, you offer something up, up to God. And it's that in that offering. So pain into purpose, it's in that offering, but you've got to be actually willing to pay that price. So you can't just offer it up. And then when the thing happens and then you don't follow through that, that won't, uh, that won't fly because then you made a false offering and well, you'll pay the price for that too. So that's, that sucks. Don't, don't do that. You'll pay the price. Um, but if you're willing to actually genuinely offer something in the form of a sacrifice, and that's what's taught sort of during Lent, right? As you kind of sacrifice something to pick up. So this is another thing, right? People think sacrifice and they think losing. If I sacrifice, it means I'm giving something up. Well, I heard an interesting pastor talk about, well, okay, Lent for Lent. This was a sacrifice something and people give up chocolate or sugar, or kind of these really maybe meaningful things to them, but sort of worldly things. Right. But the idea behind that, in my interpretation, um, and this pastor kind of echoed that, I don't remember his name, um, but he talked about, yeah, you sacrifice something to pick something else up. What are you going to put in its place? So if you're not going to have chocolate anymore. What are you going to have instead? And it's not that you have to, you know, it's not a tit for tad story, but it's kind of like when people hold on to something so strong. I remember my college roommate, she, she would say to me when I really cared for someone that I was dating and I would, I wouldn't want to let go. You know, I wouldn't want there to be an ending. I wouldn't want us to break up. I wouldn't want it to be over. I would be so upset that it, it was ending for whatever reason it was ending. And she would say, you know, the more you squeeze sand, the more it goes right through your fingers. And it's, it's that same, I, uh, that'll stick with me to this day. She's wise beyond her years. We were 19 <laughs> at the time. And I, and that's exactly it is the more you squeeze onto something you want, you hold it in your hand, right? So strongly, nothing can come in its place. You have to open your palm. You have to open your hand in order for something and allow that thing to leave in order for something else to fill its place. And so sacrifice, it's the same idea as death and rebirth, right? Something has to die in order for something to be reborn. It's just another explanation of that nothing revolutionary there, but another nice visual or image that some of my clients have liked too. when I kind of paint that image, when they're talking about something ending and they feel upset that a relationship ended and they're holding on and they're holding on. It's like, yeah, you're squeezing that sand, but it's, first of all, it's going right through your fingertips. And second of all, you can't, it's, you will never pick up the next thing if you don't open your hand. So yeah, you have to pay the price of a sacrifice, but from that will come the next thing, right? So the idea of being covered and being covered by God through the sacrifice of Jesus, Jesus and his blood and him sacrificing for our sins is this idea that we atone for our sins. And so we can be brought back to, well, I guess not just wholeness, but it's like something else can take its place when you donate blood new blood is created in your body. So it's this, so pain into purpose, pay the price for the things that you know. It's not just about 
making things right from an action-oriented perspective, that masculine, it's about that offering. It's about cutting off your head and offering it up, offering up your thought process to the unknown so that new thoughts can come in, new perspective, new ways of doing can come into your your head, your way of being. So that's my hope and my that you can maybe reckon with that. And I, I hope to speak more on that because like I said, I think there are a lot of public figures and voices that are speaking very strongly and rightfully so about that masculine side of make things right from an action oriented perspective. And it's good. I just would like to also bring to light the importance of the dark side and what we can do with that what we can do with sacrifices and pain and the unknown and why exploring it and getting to know and so another way that my clients do that and again disclaimer that's something they do on their own accord I am not a therapist but something they do of their own accord is they explore their shadow self and those are the parts of you, the elements of you that are seen as reprehensible or bad or shameful. It's the parts of you that you hold in the darkness in internal family systems. They're the exiles. They're the parts of you that don't see the light of day because you just think they're not good enough. They're shameful. You're too loud. You're too needy. You're too this or too that, or you're not enough this and not enough that. And so my clients will look into their shadow selves and I have, I have some writing exercises that I like for them to explore. And again, they're all just offerings. I send them resources and they can choose whether they explore them or not. But they've, they seem to have found them valuable because again, if something seems dark, the more you're willing to look at it, the more you realize it's colorless, the more you realize that it's not dark, it's not bad. It's just a part of you and that you have to integrate that part of you in order for it to be utilized appropriately. Just like I said, fear into bravery and picking up your sword or anger into determination so using the anger transmuting the anger right that harshness that you have for yourself because the critic wants you to do really well your inner critic wants you to be your best turning that into perhaps resourcefulness or realism how to get the the job done so how do you get the job done the critic can give you all the potential problems and roadblocks. And you, then you transmute that into the actions that you can take to mitigate those risks. So in every sense, all of the dark traits that you have can be transmuted and brought about to be useful. So oh, that was a lot. I hope I, uh, I know we kind of meandered around there and I, I didn't necessarily script this out. So hopefully it made sense and I'm glad that you meandered with me through this topic and through the mud, really the darkness to figure out well, what's the utility of this and why bother exploring it and what do these goddesses have to say. And what I'd like to do, as I said, is maybe I'll do an episode each on each of these goddesses so that we can just talk deeper into their stories and I'll do a bit more research and I can just speak through their actual stories because I, I would be interested in knowing more of that. I studied Kali when I was working on my yoga teacher training spent some time with the black madonna because of my um recent reading of the bible as an old story and real source of wisdom maybe we can look at isis and see what's in that ancient egyptian tradition and what wisdom comes from that given that it's even older so yeah that'll be a fun thing maybe to do i 
really appreciate you listening in. I mean, part of this is my own personal exploration, but it certainly means a lot that people listen. And I hope that you find some of this useful or that it touches part of you and, and stirs something in your mind or heart that you've been needing to address or wanting to learn more about, or hopefully it's awakened some new insight in you so that you can go and explore it further. So thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next time. And please do take good care until then. Next episode, I'm very excited about. Actually, I'm excited about them all. I always say excited. I really am though. I've just, that's why I do this podcast. It's really a labor of love. But the next one is a conversation I waited for, for a year and more than that. I mean, I started reading Robert Greene's works when I was 15, 16, wrestling with who I wanted to be, who I was, what was authentic, what is human nature, what is, what are the power dynamics at play in high school, super fun, you know, really struggling through my teenage years and where I belong and where I fit in. And I mean, it doesn't end when you're a teenager, does it? Where do you belong? Where do you fit in in this big, big, uh, I guess, societal makeup or community, global family, whatever you want to call it. Where do you fit into the hierarchy of power? Where do you fit into your social networks? Um, and I think Robert Green is just brilliant in the way that he describes human nature, power dynamics, and how he ties historical figures into and their stories into his explanation of, of really who we are as humans, because really hasn't changed all that much across time, which is comforting, but also, <laughs> I mean, we just have new tools, I think, today. But our innate human nature has really stood the test of time, which is very interesting. Something we can rely on at the very least. So anyway, I hope you'll listen next week. It'll be all about, well, similar topics to this, actually, funnily enough. And um, I've really, I really had a fun time recording it. So I hope you'll, you'll take the time to listen and um, see you there. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this episode today. It really helps the show when you like, review, subscribe, or donate to support the effort to continue producing amazing episodes just like this one. I look forward to seeing you again in another episode very soon, and take good care until then.